All right, guys. Welcome to another episode of Peace, Love, and Meat. We wanted to take a couple of minutes here before we dive into the episode to shout out and thank you to the companies that have partnered with us over the course of this thing for the last handful of months that have you know graciously offered some cool stuff for you guys and really are just friends of ours that make cool stuff and we want to share it and they help you know share what we do too and it's very symbiotic it's very organic and we just love that kind of relationship with companies it's the most natural yeah right like it's it's not a forced this this segment brought to you by and a lot of that stuff it's just like we have friends that make cool stuff we want to share it with you guys so we had a couple of minutes here we wanted to make sure we get all that info out to you before we jump into this episode yeah make sure that you're checking out bornprimitive.com check out all their collections they have the fireside collection which is great flannels jeans jackets check out the born primitive outdoor line which is what i'm wearing in this video if you can see it i have pretty much gone soft most videos you'll most videos you'll see us wearing one of the items out for sure collection. and in lieu of uh, in lieu of camouflage i really have kind of melded into the solids i'll wear camo when needed whitetail stuff but the born primitive idea was so somebody didn't have to blow money on you know something they're going to wear to a dinner or the store or the bar and then turn around and have to buy camo also i mean i've killed things wearing solids some of the best killers in the world are wearing born primitive outdoor solids when they're on their hunts. So check it out. It's super effective. It's a quality layering system from the base layer all the way to the outer shell. They've got it down. Lightweight, heavyweight gear. Cannot beat born primitive outdoor. Owned by a seal, founded by a vision, and just really, really great line of products. And if you sign up for the email, you're going to save some cash when you buy. And then uh, we also want to mention our buddy Drew Kohlhofer mm. over at Selway Archery. Uh, both of us have quivers that he has made. They do all kinds. They do plastic hood quivers. They do rawhide. The um, one that I have is a rawhide one that he also does custom laser engraving on. If you send like uh, any kind of design or image or something that you want engraved on them, they, they can do this awesome laser engraving on the rawhide. It just makes it look awesome. I have the Nomad Strength logo that he put on mine. But that one really came about more because Drew is awesome. Yeah. And not only that, I mean, he makes awesome stuff, but there's there's been, I, I make the joke all the time that there's been a handful of stepbrothers did we just become best friends moments that I've had with him over the course of the last year of getting to know him. Yep. Um, but just everything they do about running that company is for as long as they have. They're just good people. And, uh, I mean, true, like, American small business mindset, right? Like, yeah. they make awesome stuff, and there's good values behind it. And we wanted to share that because they make awesome stuff, and we love it. Yeah, and they do so much. The coal offers and, and Selway do so much for, I mean, if you look at anybody in the traditional archery spectrum with the podcast or anything, they're offering support, they're offering to share, they're offering to help. And that is just an example of who they are as people. So, like we said, we never want to try to inundate you with product. We never want to try to inundate you with, hey, we got this sponsor and this sponsor and this sponsor. I would rather tell you, hey, these are our friends. They make great stuff that we personally use and have used, and we want to share that. So, thank you, Drew. Thank you, Kurt, Mike Hearn over at Born Primitive uh, for really setting this up and making it go. Guys, check them out. They support us. You support us. Can't thank you enough. Everybody, welcome back to Peace, Love, and Meat. 
What's up, guys? The video. You're going to watch the video of this. You're going to notice that I'm in some fancy. It might even sound better. I don't know if it sounds way better, but I'm in like a fancy actual podcast today. <laughs> yeah, I'm in, the, I'm in the dungeon. I'm in the garage. <laughs> but it's uh, this is a good place to be, good place to kind of kick off the episode because, um, one, the holiday season is literally upon us. It's here. And I've got a couple of guys that have reached out to me just kind of, I wouldn't even say that they're, you know, fearful of the holidays, but this is when they kind of come undone. They have a lot of, excuse me, they have a lot of mixed family. So there's a lot of uh, Thanksgiving here, Thanksgiving there, Thanksgiving yep. on Friday, you know, leftovers yep. on Saturday. And, and man, everybody is susceptible to those things. So just to kind of backtrack a little bit, people that have, have followed me, but really haven't gotten um, a breakdown. So what I like to do, talked about it a little bit. I do 10 pound swings. So 230 has been the body weight that I kind of between 230 and 235 is where I envisioned this version of myself, you know, where I am capable. Um, my aesthetic is improved. My body fat is down. My muscle is up. And the way that I've achieved that is 10 pound swings. And I've talked about it from powerlifting when I would do 15 pound swings. Yeah. So if I wanted to gain, I would eat 15, I would eat literally as freely as I wanted to until I gained that 15 pound mark. And then I would start to slowly one meal at a time, convert my meals from basically free for all to breakfast is structured, eat clean the rest or eat whatever you want the rest of the day. Then it was two meals and three meals and four meals and so on. And that worked really, really well for me. What would be net gained out of that 15 pounds was probably four to five mm. um, of positive mass. And then the rest of it was just slop and water. But when you would start to clean it up, you might retain a pound or two of that four to five that you gained. And then sure. it's just this constant, like it is a lifestyle. You know, I talked about it in a little bit of a post yesterday where I was like, your life is not reduced down to 10 week cycles. Your life yep. as an athlete or as someone who wants to be better than, than average has to really be a lifestyle commitment that might have 10 week, 10 week segments, but I don't even follow that anymore. And this is, this might get over the head of somebody in the, that's a beginner, but you know, if I reach that 10 pound swing now, so 220 is my low, 240 is my high, 230 is kind of the catch point where when I hit 230, I better look improved from the last time I hit 230 or it's it's not working. So as we go into this season um, where the caloric, the caloric density of food is is much higher, um, one and the frequency of food, yeah, and the frequency of food, and then like just yeah. having leftovers. Like I am, I am a pitfall person. If there are cookies in my presence, I'm, you know, I'm a guy that's like, I'm just gonna have one cookie. But then you walk by it again, and it's like I'm just gonna have one cookie, and you can one cookie yourself into a dozen real fast. <laughs> I'll have one cookie this time. Yeah. I walk by, and I won't uh, walk away with three, but I'm gonna come back fourteen more times. Exactly, and you know, and it's like <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't allow myself to buy those pitfalls throughout the yeah. year, but this time of year, they tend to be around. So I luckily, um, kind of doubled down on some things the last few weeks, knowing that from now until the end of the year, I have 10 pounds of swing that I am yeah. somewhat leveraged on that I can really, and it's really 13 because I'm 227. Sure. So I can go yeah, up. Cause to you said you got your, you got to your kind of higher conditioning point a little sooner than usual. Yep. Right I hit, now, right? I actually so. hit 218.7 as a low, um, which is just, you know, I was 221 and woke up 
two pounds lighter of water the next day kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but that gave me cause to like, okay, switch gears, start eating more food. Protein stays the same. Carbohydrates are really the only up or down for me. Fats, proteins yep. pretty much stay constant. So as I go into the last, let's call it six weeks of the year, crunch time, I have 12, 13 pounds that within my system I can play with and enjoy myself and not yeah. not feel like I'm off course or off the system. So I don't know that that everyone can follow that model and that everyone can plan that, okay, the last six, six weeks of the year, I'm just going to have free for all. But it yeah. worked out for me that way this year. And it hasn't always in the past, but this year I feel like I'm in a really, really good place. I think my body unintentionally uh, looking for a number, but I think my body is holding pretty steadily between 10 and 12% body fat, which is like the anabolic window for growth and progression. So for me, my training has gotten a little heavier. The reps have gotten a little lower, but the tempos have become very, very important to me. So hmm. I'm not trying to bench 400 pounds, you know, for repetitions. What I would rather do is take 225 or even 275, really slow eccentric, really controlled concentric, and maybe even finish with just like some partial isometrics in the middle. And now I've hit the muscle from three different stimulus variants within yeah. one set. And that kind of stuff just pays dividends for someone like me who lifted so heavy for a long time that joints, my back, my neck, they're not perfect. They're not as bad as they have been, but they're, you know, wear and tear adds up really, really quickly on me. So with all the hiking and the hunting and all that kind of stuff, I have just kind of reverse engineered a system where my training is 40 minutes. That doesn't change. Um, yep. Sometimes it's more volume reps, lighter weight. Sometimes it's heavier weight, less reps. And that's where I'm at right now. And it's just a constant self-awareness, which is always good. I think it's an honest assessment of, okay, did I do the things in this last cycle 10 weeks, 12 weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is to really improve myself. Or was I just going through the motions? And there are definitely times where the, going through yeah. the motions is better than nothing at all. But, totally. but, you know, having those self conversations, writing down my training, writing down the thoughts about my training, I think going into the end of the year as a physically prepared athlete, I'm probably as good as I've ever been from a responsibility and dedication level. Um, because when you're powerlifting, it's just eat more to eat more. But now things are getting to that kind of refined. I know what to eat. I know how to do it. I know how to train and it's working. So have you been rolling much lately? I know I've seen you post a couple of times, but yeah, that... it's, it's kind of, it's kind of been that, um, I get one, maybe two a week if I'm really lucky right now. And that is not, yeah. that is not to say that I don't have open time during some of the gym time, but you know, I was just on, two weeks in a hunt in Missouri with the yeah. travel time, driving and all that kind of yep. stuff. Um, it really came down to about three to three and a half days of just driving, you know, in, yeah. that, in that whole loop and hunt for seven or eight days. And then you're, you're back. So hunted right after that. So it's been yep. like 10 hour days in the field every single day. Um, but even, even when I'm like in the transient stage of just like coming or going, yeah, I have 10 a.m. on Tuesday open, but yeah. that is the time that I have to do a podcast or I have to go do a school visit or any number of things that are like, sure, you know, because <laughs> I guess the way my job works is I have requirements, but there's no like 
finite deadline on those things. So yeah, when you I, get them done, you get them done. Yeah, when I get them done, I can get them done. And I try to jam all of my work into like three or four days a week. Yep. So it's like long, long work days. Yep. That way I can have three or four days a week that are long, long, like effort towards hunting or training yep. or those kind of things. And right now, and as always in the hunting season, jujitsu is the compromised thing. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I love it so much, but that is more of my hobby end of the spectrum, you know, sure. as far as I'm never going to be a world champion jujitsu player. I'm never going to be a competitive level black belt, you know, because if, if everything went to task and everything was perfect, you know, I'll be 42 next year. I'll be 52 roughly by the time the progression of what a black belt, you know, just by a timeline of expectation an well, average time, an average time, like, you know, yeah. 10 to 14 years is pretty common <laughs> for black belt. Um, yeah. I do still have that goal, but just because, and that's not even a realistic goal. It's just knowing that that is the upper echelon and everything that I've yep. ever done. It's never been to be like, man, I just want to own a motorcycle so I can go ride it on Saturday. I want to ride it on Saturday, but I want to race it on yep. Friday night or, or Sunday morning or whatever I can do. And that's a blessing and a curse, but I think jujitsu was also one of those things that I've got a healthy relationship with for the first time in my life where I, I'm very realistic about what it is. Like, sure. I am not bad. I am not great. I am good for my competitive peer level. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know, anybody yeah. that's, that's kind of in my realm of, of time invested and, and whatnot, I am capable. Um, but in the sport, man, there's still people who routinely kill me that like, on paper should not and first look should not, but they do. And that's, right. <laughs> that's the beauty of jujitsu. So it keeps me focused, keeps me interested. But this time of the year, it's always just a step back to one or two days of class a week. And yep. uh, I miss it, but it's just, I don't have more free time to give to that. And that's okay. Like in the past, I've beat myself up over it, trying to do everything in this year. And really last year too, I started being more uh, respectful to myself in that you can't do it all, you know, and these assholes get online and they tell you, well, if you can't do it all, get up earlier. Well, I already get up fairly early, you know, five thirty, mm -hmm. six o'clock. I'm not, I'm not doing the four o'clock thing. I did that for a couple of years and hated my life. Yeah. Um, I'm more of a night person. So I go to bed around, you know, 11, 11 30, get up around six. I mean, that's six and a half, seven hours of sleep. Most nights, that's a pretty good night. Usually sleep. it's quality sleep. Too. Dude, it's not. Once you sleep pretty hard, like once, <laughs> once I get still, doesn't matter if it's 1 PM or 8 PM or 10 PM. If I get still, I fall asleep and yep. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I don't feel worse for it. You know, like, right. I just, I, you know, I don't know. I'm trying to, and maybe you're not here yet and maybe you've never been this type of person, but I'm really just trying to figure myself out where mm. I know that I can go harder and probably get positive result, but the net gain is minimal or negligible if, if at all, sure. because when I push so hard in one direction, I tend to fail in everything else. And that's, yeah. that's kind of a synopsis of my powerlifting is I became great as a powerlifter, you know, far exceeded any expectation, but literally blew the rest of my life apart. Every single relationship destroyed right. every single job. Like what the hell are you doing? So, with that under my belt as a, as a mistake or a learned lesson, I'm trying to do those things a little bit better, be a little more 
considerate of the people around me, the people that care about me and myself. Like I have to care about myself too, not just the result. So totally. How's your training going? Uh, been pretty fun. The last couple of weeks I posted about it, uh, last week sometime, but I started rolling back through, um, some of that program that was written for me a couple of years back by James Fuller, who runs the Strongman Archaeology page. Yep. Uh, it was actually the same program I did prepping for that first jujitsu tournament yep. that I did. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the reason I wanted to get back into some of those movements was I could, th- what I gained from them the first time from a mobility standpoint and, and strength in these odd end ranges, mm-hmm. which I, you know, when you, when you are rolling and, and competing and playing jujitsu, like that's where you are going to get a lot of benefit is having awkward end ranges of stuff and being strong mm-hmm. in awkward, awkward places. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that builds from the center out, obviously, like you gotta be strong through your whole center trunk. If you're going to be strong with an arm extended, right. You know, like you can't have that without, the centerpiece put together. Right. You know, um, but a lot of the stuff from just a mobility standpoint, I noticed it was, it was some of the best I've felt in how I recovered and moved through better ranges of motion while still like gaining strength. Um, and I just felt like the last maybe handful of months through the summer, I was losing quite a bit of that with just from the stuff that I was doing training wise. It was just, it was gaps that I felt yeah. that I had kind of created again in what I was doing. Cause you just kind of fall back in to some stuff that, uh, is like, it's comfortable. Like it's still difficult, but it's just comfortable training yeah, style. It, it's routine, you know? Yeah, yeah, it is. And so I needed a little bit of that again to get me to the place where I'm like, okay, this is, I got to actually think through some of this stuff too. And it keeps me a little bit more mentally engaged, which is, nice at this time because i can i I needed something like that to keep my mind into it you know and so uh like the first couple of weeks of it just some of the moves like the one i posted the other day doing a behind the neck barbell press in a deep split like a deep split yeah yeah. catch like opening up that hip flexor and then that low back because you can't like super arch your back and carry that press through safely in any regard right yeah so like that type of stuff I really enjoy. And his real whole kind of philosophy is, is bringing up left to right evenly in strength. And so he, and especially when he, he relates all of this back to grappling, because he said a lot of these guys that created and modeled a lot of this training style were all grapplers and wrestlers. Like Hackenschmidt was a world-class world champion wrestler. Mm -hmm. You know, like a lot of these guys that train this way, he's like, there was, it, it was perfectly married with grappling and fighting and wrestling as this training style kind of became popular for these guys. So he's like, it just makes total sense. Yeah. And so, um, like a lot of the left to right stuff, one of the things I really appreciated about how he explained it to me was he's like, if you're doing something to build up one side, you can't do the heavy, like you can't do your weaker side. You can't force it to be the same weight just to struggle through reps. Yeah. Like if the stimulus is repetition to build up the volume, then you need to use two different weights left to Dude, right this is, to build that up. That's such a concept that Louie imparted upon us. We even talked about it light, loosely yeah. a little bit. It was like yeah. coming back from my knee injury, for for example. I wasn't training with Louie, but I consulted with Louie a little bit. And one of the things that he imparted upon me is he's like, go in and do single leg press and count your yep. volume. If you can do four plates, let's just call it 400 pounds for, for math, 
called 400 yep. pounds with your right leg eight times. That's 3,200 pounds of volume. Yep. You, you know, can you do 200 pounds with your left leg that's been compromised? Maybe. Okay. So that's 16 reps, but you yep. know what? You need to do one or two more with the weaker leg at a lighter weight to supersede the volume of the good leg because eventually that volume is going to be the measure of strength. Okay. Yes. I can do 400 for one, but that's only 400 pounds of volume with my left leg now still can't do more. So I have to drop the, even if I can do the one that's 400, I need to drop back to like a 300 or a 250 to exceed the volume of the right leg. And eventually it will catch up. But dude, yeah. that is such a, it's such a cool thing to see at the upper echelon of maximum strength. That was an understood philosophy. Whereas mm -hmm. you're talking about, you know, to steal Greg's term, expert generalism, yeah, like something that you're talking about, it still applies. It's still, yeah. you're never going to catch up your strong side by forcing the weak side to imitate the same. It needs, yeah. excuse me, it needs to be strong in its own plane and in its own time. Yeah, exactly. And especially when a lot of these movements that I'm doing in this training style are ones that require like some very different types of mobility through them than basic sagittal or frontal plane movement. Like there's a lot of rotation based pressing in this program, yep. like from doing a side press or like a bent press or things where you're doing stuff that isn't just this linear sagittal or frontal plane stuff. Yep. So you can't just overload one side to like to tr and then try and rotate and crank through a position you don't have mobility in yet. Well, and you know, it's also true, like when you transfer to, to wrestling or, or grappling, how yeah. many guys are good with their right side? You know, they, they exactly. only practice that right side. And that's one of the exactly. things that, that Scott and Adam both really impress upon us is it's like, get your, get your strong side good, but you're going to face somebody who is left-handed, you know, yeah. and they're going to be all good with the opposite side. So yeah. if you're going to do five reps with your right, you better start doing at least three or four with your left. Like, yep. It's a different thing, you know, cause it's not, you're not demanded to go one way or another, but there's going to be times where the only open out for an escape or an attack is to use your offside. And one yep. of the things that I heard Danaher say in a video yesterday, which I thought was really, really impressive. He said, jujitsu is not stopping your opponent. It is stopping their attack to begin yours. Like, mm. Otherwise, jujitsu is just a defensive measure. He's like, yeah. defense is part of the game. But if you're yeah. not attacking off of your defense, setting stuff up, you are just literally on your, like, quote unquote, on your heels the whole time because they're going to yeah. keep coming. And yeah. if your defense doesn't lead to attacks, you're on the back getting pinned the whole time. So a lot of this stuff is relevant to so many people and so many applications. But to go back to something that's even more relevant, I think, to people, and it's it's something you touched on as well, man, I've really been looking into some of the, the old Indian training, like the Indian clubs. Yeah. And if you really yep. look at those guys, the Middle East down in through India is kind of known as the mecca of traditional wrestling. I mean, you have the Greco-Roman style, but a lot of that came through Mesopotamia and up through the Middle yeah. Eastern countries. Um, yep. And even to this day, if you look at those cultures, Turkey, they have a grappling wrestling style event. Have you ever seen that? Huh. They put these dudes in these pants, these really strange pants. And they have ropes kind of inside the waistband and then down under the glute inside the pant. 
So imagine like these ropes built into these pants and you'll yeah. see these oiled up dudes leveraging their hand down these dudes pants, grabbing those ropes inside to assist with like judokin throws or things like oh, that. Crazy. But it's, it is a leverage game. It's not like pins and things like that. It's more like sumo where you just have to throw somebody, but both guys are locked in on these built in twine ropes inside the pants and they're jerking crazy. at each other and stuff. The one I've seen is the dude that flies around and they slap each other's that's, chest. That's another Indian that's, one. You know, that's <laughs> yeah. another Indian. Uh, so you got Turkey that's doing the one. You got India that's doing the slap chest. And then you've got some Japanese culture styles through Mongolia. And then there's another, there's a, I was just going to say Mongolia has a pretty big yeah, culture of so that too. Rudy Reyes, uh, Fruity yeah. Rudy, Infinite Go Rudy, he was yep. over in Mongolia and got to train with those guys. And the way he described it was if you took sumo and judo, you know, it's very like – timing based but it's also brute based you know sometimes you mm. just dig in and you plow through somebody and then sometimes you let them plow into you and use their momentum to throw yeah so that part of the world has always always been dedicated to the martial art to the skill of the yeah. individual and you look at the the countries that maybe led that forefront or is known and the indians they had war hammers they had the indian clubs they had um Gattas. stones which are actually somewhat uh the reason that sornex was able to run with the center mass bill in the way that they did. I mean, this is an old, old technology is if we'll call it, you know, yeah. a null stone. Imagine if you will, a donut, a flat yep. stone that is rounded and cut out in the middle. And it has a handle in the middle. It doesn't yep. come up over the arm, like the center mass bell or whatnot. It's just like a disc. It's a, it's a literally a fat disc, probably six to eight inches tall, centered out bottom or centered out middle with a, with a handle in it. And what they do is they do cleaning presses with it, or they'll do like snatch style mm. grips with it, or they'll grab both ends and press it. So the center mass bell is like a null stone. The Wolf Brigade mace is like the old war hammers. Um, some of the stuff that we have, like the, some of the, I can't, the fit fighter sandbags that I got, yeah, yeah, Sarah yeah. Apgar designed those. Those are somewhat like the Indian clubs. Not exactly. They're actually designed for firemen. They're, they're the same dimension as a fireman's hose. So yeah. these firemen can do a lot of this stuff with those and they're, they're freaking awesome. Yeah. So that's what my training, it, you know, accidentally, curiously, um, because of the investment in wrestling and whatnot, I circled back there and started realizing like, holy crap, none of this stuff is new. None of yeah. this stuff is, is reinvented. Um, and a very few people, Greg being one, but there's a few other people out there. There's a guy that's called, uh, maybe Warhammer Jim or Warhammer, jiu-jitsu i can't remember but okay but this guy does a lot of like you know he's one of those guys that has the eastern tibet flags and the symbolism on a lot of his yeah. stuff he's the guy with the swastikas on his warhammers but they're the actual traditional tibetan symbolism gotcha. but every time he posts yeah. himself training with them <laughs> oh, it's like yeah, oh look at this <laughs> you know look at this asshole this he must hate jews he's anti-semitic or right. whatever and it's like two google searches or two seconds of a google search and you'll see it's the one that's the reverse with the dots in yes. between it. You know, it's a yep. very, it's a sign of peace is what it is. Yeah. And, uh, but that's, I really want to get one of the big gattas. Oh, like the, or, or the, the ones that look like the, like the big carnival baseball bats that are inflated yeah, and yeah. they're like yeah. real and they, then they get bigger as they go up, but they weigh like 40 or 50 pounds. That's the and one that you I'm see talking. the dudes that, yeah, the two yeah of so them. you see the ones that the dude drops with one hand back yeah. behind each time. Those things are, man. Well, that's, that's like this guy, you know, so I'm looking at him. I have, I don't know much about him. I've just followed him for a short time. 
but I'm going to guess he's probably somewhere in the 5'10 to 6-foot range. I'm going to guess he's probably 150 to 170 pounds. Like, I don't know. But, but you know, he yeah. looks very lean, very muscular, but not big. Yep. Leverage is a motherfucker because yep. that's one thing you learn that in jiu-jitsu. Like, there's a guy named Corey. He broke my foot. Like, we, it was an accident, but small guy, like 5'6", 145, 155 pounds. But his ability to like bulldog me, you know, get into leverage positions. And I outweigh him by 70, 80, 90 pounds. Um, But he's compact. And it's just like he knows how to use his body and wedge his body. Leverage is an amazing thing. And that's where a lot of the stuff with the mace and the center mass bells, when you start getting outside of like you're talking that sagittal one position kind of movement and you start moving into the wheelhouse of, well, what does this center mass bell do? Like I used to do like a, I would call it like a hammer release where I would stand straight forward, dip down, touch the center mass bell to the ground on my right side, and then yep. extend up and over to the left. So like this big sweeping movement, Yep. obliques, sternum stretches, the pecs get tight, all of that stuff. It's kind of like shoveling something over your shoulder, yeah. well, like and that you, same type of Greg's got movement. the new mace deal where it looks like, you know, he has the shovel where it comes up overhead, but then he has the one where the handle kind of like comes to the right side out and then the heavy end gets extended. It's kind of like you're pitching hay, you yeah, know, that kind totally. of thing. And I think a lot of those, those traditional movements probably started from farm work, you know, like, Oh, for sure. I do this all the time and he's a big, strong guy. Well, I don't farm like that guy does. What can I do? Well, I'm going to pick up an implement and do the movements that this guy does. So mm-hmm. a lot of these movements, man, it, it's really made me think, and I was talking to Derek Woodski about it. Uh, just some of the different training stuff that we see nowadays. And I won't, I won't get privy to that information because it's really like Derek's a very progressive thinker and very, like very, very smart person. Yeah. And to, to let him have right to that information to share it first, but it's, it's really interesting stuff. But nevertheless, um, we always, always come back. Like what is really advanced is our understanding of what we're seeing and the data that we can collect from it. The movements mm-hmm. have not radicalized, no. you know, and the thing about this sports specificity stuff, I'm talking to you parents with eight year old baseball all-stars that are going to the majors one day, you know who you are. Um, they, they don't need sports specific training at eight years old. They don't need sports specific training at 18 years old. They don't need sports specific training probably through college. Honestly, what they need is a fundamental strength progressive system that makes them strong regardless of what the sport or demand is. I see a lot of these archers doing and and listen, I am guilty of wanting to have that light bulb moment where this one thing will make you a better archer. This three movements will make you a better grappler. If you make an athlete stronger, if you make an athlete faster, more mobile, that is the best sport specific thing you can do for them. like a totality of strength is the best thing that you can do. Now, Levi Morgan hits me up and he's like, man, I just want to get better at archery. What can I do? Well, he's vying for world titles as the best archer in the world. That might be a guy where you start to scratch your head and say, okay, what is something? The 0.5% matters to him. Yeah. If you're not, if you're not a professional and earning money at your sport or hobby, you do not need sport specification. Promise you. You need a good, solid, fundamental program that is boring as watching paint dry, but progressive week to week, training session to training session. 
And I'll tell you something that's really interesting about uh, Coach Gillespie, Bill Gillespie. He actually believes that his progression for his training is so so minute, but so important that if you miss, let's say it's a 10-week training cycle. If you miss a day at week seven, you start over. Because oh, he wow. believes that it won't express itself in the next three weeks. But the next training cycle will start with that super compensation number but it's actually forced effort rather than earned effort. Like you yeah. can hit that PR through willpower and heart, but yep. can you actually hit that? So, I mean, he was serious. He was like, when I would have guys at Liberty that would miss for two days of being sick, they're starting week one again. Crazy. You know? And like, man, what if you applied that to the rest of your life? Like, that's kind of like the 75 hard thing too. It is. And you know, but, in, I mean, from a, from a conceptual thing, not from like a inner right. mechanics of the actual thing, but, but the idea that if you miss a day, you start over. Well, but think about this too, like put it into money. You want to earn a million dollars, right? Well, along the way you can afford the Corvette or you can afford the Mercedes S class or whatever it is. Well, you go drop 80, 90 G's on that. Are you actually wanting the million dollars or are you wanting the perception that you have a million dollars, you know, and that's where it comes down to like, are you wanting to actually build like Bill did for 62 years when he became the heaviest bench presser on earth at 62 years old, drug free. He understood that if he didn't do the right things at 35 at 40, those possibilities were not going to be there yep. at 40. And that's such a, and, and it's such a foundational thing that made me change my whole belief away from, 10-week cycles, 12-week cycles, you are a life. And there there will occur 10 weeks within that period. And you need to get better within those 10 weeks. But thinking that I'm going to do perfectly for 10 weeks and then cruise for the next 10. Because what do people yep. do after a bodybuilding show? Yep. They balloon right back up. Yep. Only in the last probably five or 10 years have you seen people being like, no, I'm going to reverse diet out of my show. And it's like, so then they're consciously aware of what they're doing at all times rather than just like, I got my number, forget it, forget the effort, forget the discipline. Okay. I got a show in 12 weeks. Let's get disciplined again. It's consistent micro discipline every single day, every day forward. And that is such a big shift for me. And I know that's kind of jumbling three ideas into one, but mm -hmm. if you're wanting to get better simplicity, very, very micro progress is the goal is the win. Um, yep. And like I talked about to kind of wrap this point up when I was on the cube, when I was running the cube method, mm -hmm. it was like, look, all I want from you this 10 week cycle. And I know I'm contradicting myself right now, but that's the way that the programs ran was 10 week cycles. I want five pounds on each lift. That's 15 pounds on your total every 10 weeks for a year. That's yep. 75 pounds on your total. If you're a 1500 pound lifter, if you do that for 10 years, five pounds per 10 weeks, if you do that for 15 years, you'll be a 2250 raw total in 10 years. Tell me you don't want the 2250. You do. You're just yeah. not willing to give me 10 years to get there. You yep. take a guy like me that got there very, very quickly, 2237. But then injury occurred because yeah. I was pushing for the result and not the actual progress. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, totally. So that's where I warn people. Don't try to revolutionize yourself in 10 weeks or 20 weeks or 30 weeks. It does not matter how fast you get there. As long as the train keeps moving forward forever. That's like I'm at day 1640, 1650, whatever it is. It's like, yep. that's five years more or less, right? Yeah. It has not always been 
the look or the strength level or the performance level that I wanted, but it's 1600 days later, I am actually ahead of where I thought I would be, you know? Yeah. And exactly. that's, that's tough for people to swallow, especially when they're at rock bottom. But dude, this is the, this is the result of my own rock bottom, mm-hmm. you know? Um, January 1st of 2019, I decided I wanted to live and this is where I am, you know, four and a half years later. So people need to slow down because I think the 10 week cycle is a great recipe for success. But at the end of it, you're either feeling like, man, I didn't get where I wanted to be, or I got exactly where I thought I would. And now the brakes are off and I can do whatever I want again. And then it becomes that ad nauseum repeat every day better than the last. As a side note, watching Bill bench a thousand pounds two years ago at Summerstrong was in the top three, like most impressive things I've ever seen in my life. Like in any, any realm of anything, not even just like athletic stuff. Like that was one of the coolest things I've ever seen in my life. Well, and he was, I think he was like, I think he had just turned 60 or something or 61. Yeah. Like when it was a couple years ago when he did it, but like unreal, like I tried to tell people about it later on that are like, aren't in the world. And I'm like, yeah, "Yeah, I watched a, I watched a 60 year old man bench press a thousand pounds this weekend. And they're like, what do you mean he bench pressed a thousand pounds? You mean like that was his total between three lists? I'm like, no, he had a thousand pounds over his face and he pressed it off his chest. Yeah. (laughs) Like it was unreal. Well, and Bill should be like a a shining marker for the rest of powerlifting. Cause I came up in kind of that, like, outlaw era of powerlifting, you know, and, <laughs> yeah. um, it was renegade rebels and rogues, to be honest, you know, it was where yeah. the guys that were just blue collar pissed off at the world, hated everything went. And Bill yeah. was such an example of the opposite, you know, raised the yeah. family, worked in a university strength and conditioning setting at one of the most religious colleges in the country is a very devout religious man himself. Very, very like, appreciative of the support of his family and his wife. Um, just a total counterpoint to the argument that you have to be this, you know, quote unquote, badass, you know, mm-hmm. what's it called? Lone wolf mentality. And Bill's just the opposite of that. And it, it really left an impression on me when he hit the world record at 62 years old, because he, he's like, I knew I would one day. I just wasn't strong mm-hmm. enough yet, you know? And like, for me, it was always, yeah, I am strong enough to do that. But I wasn't like I was, I was strong and then I could lift it, but it was, that's what broke me down. Like a weight I should have done, you know, multiple times broke me down because I wasn't actually that strong. I was just hyper peaking for everything I was doing. And this way is so much better. The, the, the understanding that it is a life, that is a lifestyle, that it is not one week at a time or two weeks at a time, that it is grains of sand on the beach every day. Yeah. It's like, I'm just adding grains of sand to the base that I've already built. And you think of the, the way to think about it of strength in persistence, not just strength to get something done. Cause you think about, he was 62 years old mm-hmm. when he was 45 and he'd been doing it for 20 something years, 30 years or whatever at that point. Yeah. Like for him to be strong enough to say, Nope, not yet. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and then not know if it was going to be five more years or 17 more years, yeah. like it ended up being like, but, and then to be okay with it, he's like, nope, not yet. Not there yet. Well, and you know, he kind of, he to stuck, still be good. He stuck to his plan because 
you know, I remember coming about up in the late nineties, Bill Gillespie was one of the big name ventures. Like he was known yeah. as a big name venture. He was known as one of yeah. the guys that Louie consulted with on strength training. So like, you know, he coached out at the Seattle Seahawks. He coached at Liberty. He coached all across. So he was very well yep. respected as a coach. But then, you know, he kind of stayed to his plan and the, the benches went from the 800s to the 900s, from the 900s to the 1,000. Bill stayed in that 800, 830 range for a long, long time, you know, yep. and it's like, well, this guy's 50 years old now. He's he's done. He just kept going, just kept playing and kept making progression and literally um, he benched over a thousand, I think three or four times in competition, ultimately leading up to the biggest bench press of all time. Now, Jimmy Kolb came along and like blew that away 200 pounds more. But Jimmy yeah. is a dude that's also been like, he was big when I was lifting, went away for a few years, came back bigger and stronger, went away for a few years. There's another guy in Europe, Peter Petrus. He was a guy mm. that would literally disappear from any competition whatsoever come back every three or four years and put up a top five raw total and then disappear and then come back. And he eventually, <laughs> he, did he, get the, he did get the, um, the world record for a short time in the 308 or maybe it was super heavy, but anyway, it was like 2,400 plus raw. And then, uh, Milanichev came with the 2,500 and so on and so forth. The kid, uh, Andrew Haas, a kid I knew for a long time, he's just mm -hmm. like 26 or 27. He's, he's been projected to, to go over 2,600 raw. Um, kid's an absolute mutant of a, of a strength animal. And like <clears throat> when I knew him a little better, I actually met with him at first watch because he was kind of on a crossroads of is powerlifting worth it? Is this all worth it? Cause you know, it's like he was at the point where yeah. it was destroying relationships, um, really kind of taking its toll on him. And I hope he doesn't mind me saying that. Cause I think he's talked about those things, but after that conversation and not saying it was me, like he found the questions himself. I just gave him the story of don't be like me. Yeah. And, uh, I think he went back to work with a different perspective and dude, since then he has just progressively grown into, I mean, he's a world record holder and he's an absolute mutant. There was a guy around here. Um, and I think he's a couple years younger than me, but for a while he was, everybody was kind of projecting it. Oh, is this Jesse, Jesse Norris, Jesse Norris is a, is a freak. Yeah. He's unreal. Yeah. And he he's around here. Is he now? But I remember uh, he has been oh, has for he? like this. Yeah. He I never knew much about for... Jesse other than he was strong as fuck. <laughs> I used to, I used to watch him. I used I watched him one time. He was doing deadlift because deadlifting was like his. Gym. Yeah, that was like he was a good puller. And I watched him do deficits. And he was doing 800 something pounds for like sets of 12. Yeah. Like was. it was it was just the most <laughs> unbelievable thing I've ever seen. Yeah, he was not like, a big guy. <laughs> No, like I, he was like in so. the yeah, he was like two twenty something between two twenty two thirty, and he's actually not as tall as I thought he was, no. but based on how he was built, because like when you think a dude it looks two thirty, but he doesn't look like I mean yeah. he looked kind of lean, you know, um, but yeah, he was another one. I don't know. I think he ended up going into law enforcement stuff or something or corrections or something like yeah. that. But man, he was another one that I'm just like this. I, how are people built this way? Yeah, you know, there was a guy I met. Um, <laughs> I met him at York Barbell. There was a big competition up there. It's actually one of the meets that Dave went like 28 or 2,900 before he hit his 3,000s. Uh, yeah. Dave Kovacs, that was his name because it was a big yeah. – you remember Greg Kovacs, the muscle tech guy? Yes. Like, 
I just yes. ripped 585 for 31 reps on the incline <laughs> bench or whatever. Thanks, Muscle yeah. Tech. Um, but, but Greg was like, Greg was insanely strong and large. Like he was, he was the first 330 yeah. pound man on a stage. He didn't look good, but he was ripped. You know, he just like yeah. had a bastard of a physique, but he was strong as hell. But anyway, Dave Kovacs, no relation. I'll never forget. He was 42 years old, squatted mm-hmm. over 800 raw, laid down and bench 620 raw, and then um, pulled like 810, 815, like it was an empty bar and totaled over 2200 raw. And that was when I was still in gear, but I was kind of like on that swing of, I had benched 832, the fastest I had ever benched a bench press in my life in a bench shirt. And I was like, so the heaviest bench was also the fastest, easiest bench. The gear is superseding my ability. And that's really all it was. And dude, it's, it's so funny. I was having a conversation. It might've been with Tyler Minton about this, but when something starts to lose the appeal of difficulty for me, I have to change it. And that's where I was with my compound and not because I was like a super killer, but it was like, I was shooting pretty solid groups to 70 yards, like consistently, um, yeah. I'll, you know, I'll say a volleyball down to a, a softball at 70 yards, as far as my grouping, um, you know, 80 yards is probably more of the, vo- the volleyball size and a hundred. You're just, you know, if I hit the target, I was happy, but anything inside of that, I was really, really good, but I was still losing animals or losing opportunities. And I realized very quickly that my gear had it superseded my ability. And that's what was happening yeah. in, in the geared powerlifting. The gear was making me a better example of a lifter than I actually felt I was. So mm. when I went raw, probably one of the proudest raw moments I ever had in my life was when I did an XPC qualifier for geared lifting raw. And I had the second biggest total of the day at 21, <laughs> 2138. Cool. And the very next week is when I went to Mark Bell's. I, I competed seven days apart. I competed there for the qualifier went to Mark Bell's and totaled 2204 the next weekend for a thousand kilo total. Um, but I, I really use that meat as a prep meat, you know, second kind of like over second attempts at the XPC qualifier and then all out for my, for my next week. Um, and that, those two meats really kind of put me on the map back to back, but I just, the raw lifting just made me feel different, made me feel like yeah. this is what you are. This is what you can do. And yep. there's no hiding it. So not that it's better than, not that the recurve is better than the compound, but just for me, I'm the type of person when I feel like my gear starts to outrun me, then I need mm-hmm. to change. Do you, I mean, this is kind of related, but not, but because you rattle off numbers pretty well yep. on stuff that you, do you, are you a person that like remembers every meet yeah, yeah. number you've had and stuff? I mean, just like off the top of your head. Yeah, yeah. Cause I, it's weird because I ended up running longer than I played football, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and I remember most times of different events, but not as many as I would think, but I could tell you almost every single game of rushing yards I ever had. Yeah. Like there's weird little nuggets of memory that I, I would have assumed, but I have a friend, one of my good friends who was, he actually coaches the track team at my hometown high school now. Um, and he was one of the like state champ. He was a state champion sprinter when we were in high school. Unbelievably fast. Uh, not only does he, he's like that. He, he not only remembers every time he ever ran, he remembers most times of everybody he ever ran against. Like, it's just crazy. Like just this pool of times, like it's kind of like this running 
inside joke between all of us that are were track guys back then were like, oh, do you remember that one guy? I can't remember his name. He's a really fast one where he's up to. It's like, just text Aaron. He'll remember and tell you like his top five times and where he ran them. And like we do it as a joke and then we send him the text and he actually will fire back. He's like, oh yeah, he ran this against me and he ran this at this meet like the week later. And it's just like, how do you hold that information like that? It's so funny. Oh, dude, it's, that's the way I've always been like numbers. And like, I still remember all my, my elementary friends, phone numbers. Like I can see, I can do phone numbers, yeah. phone numbers. I remember, I remember homes. I remember my friends, eight, five, but for some nine, reason, nine, like eight, six, there's some eight, six, one, nine. That was Jason nine, eight, six, eight, five, nine, nine, eight, six, 12, 85. That was clay. Eight, five, nine, <laughs> nine, eight, six, 1837 was Luke. Eight five nine nine eight six eight eight. And we can say all these now because nobody has landlines. So yeah, go ahead, eight, call eight, those numbers. Eight, 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 nine, those seven <laughs> was uh, Mark and Rocky, my neighbors. I mean, I remember yep. all those numbers. Um, yep. You know, so been very, very good with numbers my whole life. But the first meet, I was nineteen. I was two hundred nineteen pounds at weigh in, so I was a two twenty lifter. I totaled a six sixty squat, four forty bench, and a six seventy deadlift. Um, you know, I was a seventeen seventy total at two twenty mm-hmm. drug free. And then my next total was 1840 um, a few months later. And then I went 1910. And then I stopped for a while, did Strongman, won two events, won the Golden Eagle Classic, which put Kevin Knee on the map. If you remember him, uh, yep. the young guy from Boston, Strongman. Yep. Um, but the Golden Eagle Classic was in St. Louis. I was a no name, walked in there and won that, qualified for America's Strongest Man uh, that year, finished third in Utah. Um, and then I went back to powerlifting, and that's when everything took off. I went 2050, 2105, 2200, uh, 2210, 2325, 2420, 2505, 2570, 2612. Then I went geared, went 2138-2204, 2215-2100, and then another 2150 to win pro raw right after that. And then I blew my legs out. So I remember all my lifts. I don't think I ever finished unless I bombed in a geared meet, which happened yeah. like three times. Um, I never finished f- lower than fourth in any competition yeah. I ever did. Um, most of my competitions were, you know, at least a weight division win. There was some bullshit when I was lifting with uh, some lighter weight guys like Richard Hawthorne was a fucking monster. He was a 150 lifter or something like that but his coefficient was always astronomical. And that's, yep. that's part of where the, there's no weight class in the jungle. It's like, yep. you know, you, when you want to pick up a car, you're going to call Richard or you're going to call me. And that's not a knock right. on Richard, but it's just like the absolution <laughs> of right. the coefficient was supposed to be an equalizer. But if you had a strong lightweight guy, um, that was going to be, that was going to be the guy that, that won. But as far as biggest total, I was always in the top two. So I get frustrated looking now because. Well, imagine if you had a coefficient in swimming, like he's five right. inches shorter, so he gets a two second bonus, right. you know, it's like, right. you know, I don't know. But I even just, just looking at the times for, for track stuff now, yeah, it's, it's crazy that how fast this already happened. We're even in Idaho. I, and even the, the, the state champion relays that I was a part of, wouldn't have made the finals of the last like three state track meets in Idaho. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's crazy how fast those things progress. Like I was never, I was never like the top end 
like open sprinter guys. Yeah. I was always a good relay guy and then I could jump and that was kind of my thing, which is why when I moved into multis in college, like I was good enough to be decent at a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. Like I wasn't ever the guy that was going to win the, the 100 open, but like my fastest high school time and that was like 10.99. But you did decathlete, it, right? For that reason. That's what I mean. Yeah, like yeah, when yeah. I went to when I went to multi. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I, was, I said multi. That's just what the, that's the that's the inside lingo. Yeah, dude. for the the track uh, and field uninitiated. <laughs> uninitiated. <laughs> so was so when I went to to decathlon in college, like that's why I ended up being okay. Yeah, because I wasn't gonna ever be the dude. But when I ran, I ran a ten nine nine in high school as my like PR in the hundred, and I'm like I was I made I made finals that year, and I think I got fifth in the open in that in that year. And there were four dudes this last year that were sub 10, eight yeah. in Idaho. And I'm like, wh- where did these, where did they come from? Like, it's so crazy how it happens so fast. And so I get kind you, of, what do you attribute that to? Do you think it's human evolution? Know, do you think it's sports performance? Do you think it's sports nutrition? I mean, it, I think it, a little it has bit to of be it is, something. Yeah. You know, I think, I think in track, lately i think a lot of the better athletes are doing i mean track has always been one where like it's a spring sport so football guys do it but i think guys are taking track more seriously now as a competition rather than i just need to stay in shape in the spring for football which in idaho a lot of times that's what it was Mm -hmm. because there wasn't a lot of top end sprinters that came out of idaho ever yeah like there was you get one or two every couple of years that were like okay this is the track dude out of here there was a lot of middle distance guys a lot of distance guys that were good coming out of idaho because cross cross country was big but from the sprint side there wasn't a lot there was a lot of good throwers that come out of here because there's a lot of farm big boys. farm boys that come out of here <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, i actually exactly. threw, i threw with a kid uh from idaho at center college uh we had a really big, yeah dude i just remember looking at him he looked like you know he's one of those guys that looked like um he looked like brock lesnar in college plus about five percent body fat like do you remember where he was from in idaho it was northern i, I, I do remember yeah. that but he was just like yeah. a I mean, not like northern Nez Perth, but like north of Boise. I do remember yeah. that. He was in farm country and um, just a hoss. But, yeah. you know, he killed us in the shot that day. Um, I ended up getting him in the hammer, but that was be- just because I had better technique and he just kind of brute through the thing. But um, I knew a couple of those guys, too, that they get up and they're just like they've never lifted a weight in their lives and they and they look yeah. just thick. Yeah. They just get up and their hands are giant. Their hands are giant. <laughs> and they just like look like they're holding a baseball when they're holding a shot put. And I'm like, what in yeah. the world? Well, I'll never forget. Um, so Woodski and, and Bert obviously are pretty yeah. proficient hammer throwers. And I mean, they call Bert yeah. hammer. So anyway, yep. um, NAI, which is where I went to college, we, we measured Same. everything in yards. So it was 70 <laughs> oh, yards. Nice. <laughs> and uh, Bert and, and Woodski are talking about like a 70 meter throw is like, but they're talking 70, you know, they're like, right. Oh yeah. We threw 70 and blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, dude, I threw 71. What are you guys talking about? Come on now. And then they're like meters. And I was like, Oh, yards. Oh, <laughs> we threw yards. But, uh, um, <laughs> I never figured out the javelin. I think I just used too much brute instead of, instead of like finesse, but the shot, that was like, one I actually ended up picking like of the new ones I did in college. I ended up picking that out pretty decently. I always thought from- that the guys, that through javelin, I mean, this is obviously wrong. They're, they're guys that are skilled at all of them, but I always yeah. thought javelin throwers didn't make great shot putters or hammer throwers. Um, right. it was more of like javelin was a little bit more ballet 
to where like hammer and it's the same with disc too. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I put them in the same caliber. You, yeah. see, you could see some guys that threw disc well, but they were always more of like six seven lean, six six yeah. lean. Um, yeah. And the, the the hammer and shot guys were like six six endomorph. It's like there was no there was no waddling shot. waddling up to the ring. <laughs> I always love the guy that would come up like the big giant and he would have the shot kind of like cupped in his hand and he'd like be tossing it behind his back a little bit. And you know, this guy's getting ready to rip 60 feet just, just because he can, you know, but, um, I, I held the, uh, I held the shot team record for the active season when I threw, um, and that was at 58 feet, uh, never really otherworldly, but I threw with a guy that threw for the U S Olympic team. So Ohio state had their relays one time. Yeah. I looked him up a couple times, Dan something, but um, nevertheless, I'll never forget. They recruited him to football and they redshirted him this year that he was going to throw because they couldn't get a football helmet to fit him. Like he wore like an eight and a half fitted hat. Like it was insane how big this, this human was, but I'll remember. So keep in mind, I'm throwing like 57, 58 on my best. So I'm throwing 50 feet. 45 feet, whatever, just standing at the toe block, not spinning, not gliding, just standing there pushing. He threw 59 standing at the toe block, like pushing and just throwing. <laughs> just and he ended up throwing like 63. One little half or, twist in a throw. Yeah, he threw like 63 <laughs> or four that day. And I just remember shaking his hand and I felt like a small child. Like I just felt oh, like I had no, so big, well, I mean, funny, it was dude. a, it was a, you know, big 10 open relays. And here I am yep. from Berea College, NAI representative. <laughs> and here I am. Like, so funny, dude. It was such a it was such a humbling. Like, I had no business doing track anyway. And honestly, uh, Luke Johnson, I referenced him as one of the phone numbers. His dad was the coach, legendary NAI coach, cross country, track and field, legend. And I knew Luke, and I'd started lifting, and I was going to school, and I was. I was one of the guys. I mean, I had a 32 ACT. I had a 1490 SAT, um, 3.2, 3.3 grade point average. And I was still being told like, hey, you're you're on the cutting block here. You know, like, mm-hmm. don't know if you're going to get in. Yeah. So I talked to Coach Johnson one night. We were just having tacos at his house. And I'm just like, man, I don't know if I'm going to get into school. And he was like, well, throw for me. Like, that'll get you in. And nice. I was like, okay. And he's like, I've never thrown an implant in my life. He said, are you strong? And I said, I think so. And he said, well, what's your squat? What's your bench? What's your deadlift? And he was like, okay, welcome to the team. So <laughs> you're in, <laughs> but the, but the cool thing about it was is it, it, all of that stuff led to where I am today because that gave me privy to the sports weight room. And it gave me, yep. it gave me privy to like sports and conditioning as far as having a program, things to follow. And that's where I squatted my first 700 pounds was in that training room. And yeah. I was like, well, shit, I need to do a powerlifting meet. And the rest was history. I finished out the year throwing. Um, and once you're, once you're in school, you're in school. So uh, I talked to him and I was like, look, I'm much more invested in the powerlifting. I'll throw if you want me to, but I yeah. need to work the weekends. I can't go to meets. I can't make practice. I need to work. And he said, are you really going to work? And I said, yeah, this is like, honestly, the only option I have to make some money is on the weekends. And he said, well, if that's the case, then you're free. Like, don't feel obligated. Come in and train with us, throw with us, come do the relays events if you want to. And like, you know, just be an alternate, you know, just be open to being an alternate. And I said, great. 
never called me my junior my sophomore year. Junior year was same kind of deal. No, never got a call. So my senior yeah. year, I was like all in on powerlifting. And he was like, Hey, I need you at a meet. And I was like, well, I got a powerlifting meet that weekend. So <laughs> it kind of wrote itself, but you know, I never would have found powerlifting if it hadn't been for him giving me a shot to go to school, you know? So thanks coach Johnson. It's funny. I had a, as far as getting into the sports performance side of things, mine was a very similar situation with it being my multis coach in college. And he ended up uh, kind of kicking me in the pants for a lot of the training stuff because when you take on seven more events that I've only, I've never done before, mm-hmm. you know, like the training part in the weight room became incredibly more important than even I was doing prior to that, you know, from even just a recovery standpoint at that point. But, uh, he was, his name's Harry Clark and he was, uh, he, he was a decathlete at university of Houston for a year when, uh, Carl Lewis was there. Mm-hmm. And he ended up coming back and competing for uh, Montana State and still holds the Montana State decathlete record for the all for I think he definitely has the one ever done in the state of Montana at the collegiate level. But I think he's up for he's I mean, he's towards the top. I mean, he was really good. Yeah. And he ended up uh, coming to, to Carroll where I was, which is NAIA school. Mm-hmm. And uh we went to a meet. It was kind of a, it was a similar situation when you met that guy and you just saw like, okay, this is what a high level of, yeah. of these guys looks like. We were at a meet and it was one of our very first meets. Cause when I was, when I got brought into the track team, I was actually the very first person ever signed to the track team because they brought it back after like 40 years of not having a track program. Yeah. And they brought it back and I was the first person to sign for the team. So like the first year we had 18 people on the team, <laughs> men's and men and women. Yeah, yeah. And then like it grew and we ended up having like really good teams and guys that were national champions. But that first second year, we were just like bad news bears yeah, every yeah. meet we went to, right? <laughs> and we went to we went to uh University of Idaho, drove over to Moscow and uh we go we go to this meet and running at the meet was washington state was there obviously because they're right there UW had some guys there oregon mm-hmm. and oregon state had some guys there so this is like big pac 12 meet basically yeah, yeah. and then us and montana state had some guys there so i mean it was all d1 schools yeah. and then us and it was <laughs> yeah. literally just because of the connections that our coaches had to the other guys that were setting up the meet and the coaches of these other schools like just let us in we got a couple guys that are fast like we won't come in and embarrass ourselves we promise and yeah. they're like sure bring bring a team so we drove over in a min in two minivans like literally like 15 person <laughs> passenger vans we drove to the thing didn't even have a bus and uh at this meet at washington state was a guy uh at the time his name was jeshua anderson mm-hmm. and he was a 400 hurdler and he was in the like olympic trial level of stuff he competed at worlds and i think he actually placed at worlds the year prior mm-hmm. uh, but he was still running for washington state and so everybody's like jeshua's here this is going to be a cool meet to be at because you're going to get to see this is what a high level 400 hurdler dude looks like. Right. Mm-hmm. And so he ends up cause it's indoor meet. It was winter. There's not 400 hurdles. Uh, he ended up doing a couple of the sprints. He did the open four yeah. and then he was, he did, uh, I think he did, he might've done the 60 hurdles. Yeah. And then he comes to do the four by four. And essentially this is just a meet. That's a training day for him. And he's right. not there to take it super seriously. Just for where he's in the schedule comes to the four by four and everybody's like, Oh sweet. He's going to crank out some times. He 
kicks off the race. He's the first leg for Washington State in this race, and everybody's watching. Like, okay, he's first. That's weird. We would have thought he would have been fourth or whatever. Yeah. And all the people, because when you do the indoor meets, it's a two hundred meter track. Yeah, yeah. Right. So everybody, and, and obviously it's the same when you do outdoors. It's four hundred. You come back around. Everybody's next leg are standing all in the same place. So he runs the first leg, cruises by. It's staggered, but you know he's still ahead of everybody. Yeah. And it comes in, he hands the second person off. Second person goes, hands the third person off, and there's no fourth leg. And I was like, oh, I wonder if they just had, like, they just wanted to run the three people. It's a training day. Jeshua steps back onto the track and takes the fourth handoff. And so he ran the first and the fourth leg of the relay. And his split on the second one was faster than his first one two minutes prior. And they ended up winning the race by, like, eight or nine seconds like they blew everyone out of the water and he ran two of the legs in that race like it was one of the craziest things ever to see because you're like okay he ran that first one he did a 49 Mm -hmm. in that first one and it looks like he's jogging like he could not be caring less about this event right now by the look of him running this first 400 then he steps on the track for the second one and he split like a 47 low or something like that like not crazy fast but Still, you're like, what? Who is this guy? It's crazy. The fastest 200 I ever saw run was Michael Johnson, and not on TV. Oh. Like, got to saw him. Got to saw. Got to saw. Got to see him run at uh, one of the Atlanta. Re- no, it was a Cincinnati relays, and uh, he did a did a nineteen something. Yeah, dude, it was it was insane. Sub twenty. Yeah. yeah, and uh, but it was a cruise for him too. Like, it was just a preparatory thing for one of his Olympic years, and it was like. I was just a kid, you know, but seeing this dude fly was insane. Um, do you remember the Dan versus Dan decathlon commercials? Dan O'Brien and Dan Jeffries, dude. Yes, you talk oh, about Dan some O'Brien. Icon- we had a meet named Dan. O- we had a meet after Dan yeah. O'Brien. So you're, you yeah. Talk, you, I know you're a big ad guy as far as like some of the Under Armour and Nike shit back in the day. You need to dig dude, some of those. I, up. I send you the one today. No, with the Randy Moss and Jason Williams. Do you remember that? I Nike do remember commercial? that one, dude. That was I awesome. found it they, today. They were the same high school, Dupont High School. Yeah, dude. And they, but but they have the the Dukes of Hazard theme song yeah. going over the ad, and it's clips from them when they're kids playing football. I do remember in the street. that. I found it today, and I I think I sent it to you on Instagram. But it is I, we were I had a post like a month ago, like what was the best yeah. sports commercial? And I send you these all the time, but yeah, like yeah. I had totally forgotten about that one. That it was, was so good. good. Um. But yeah, I love. Sorry to interrupt you. Uh, the no, Dana no, no, Dan. no, no, no. I just, yeah. I, I just love because there was a series of those commercials leading up to the Olympics, and I mean, it was like yep. the two best guys in the Olympics were both U.S. representatives in the decathlon. Yep. So that yep. was a big one. Um, but yeah, man, I always loved when Randy would talk because you expect him to be, you know, a street thug, <laughs> yeah. whatever, and he's like, "Man, when he would throw me that yeah. ball." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just love that. Did you Have ever you hear seen the story, the, uh, the one about the, uh, Julian Edelman talking? I was just going to ask you seen that one about the hot tub. <laughs> get, <laughs> my, about get my water about 104. 104. <laughs> Don't ever get talk my to Gatorade. me, motherfucker, when I'm talking to my mama. <laughs> so funny. Edelnut. Edelnut. <laughs> oh, but so man, good. could you imagine, like, playing on those teams? I'm sure it was hell, but, like, everybody on that team was stacked. Like, oh yeah, you know, it's like winning at all costs. Like you put up with like, that had to be the same dynamic with Jordan, you know, and the bulls. It's like, yep. I hate this motherfucker, but we're going to win 60 games in a championship. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, you, and, and dude, about that. <laughs> you do have to put up like, 
I think about myself in those terms, not to compare myself to Jordan or anything, but as a teammate, I was abysmal, you know, because, but you know, I think about it and I don't know if abysmal is the right word. I know that I was not, I I know that I wasn't the best teammate I could have been in the sense of like family. Like I never felt like it was like everybody I trained with was my competition. You know, we had a gym here in Mount Vernon. I mean, this is like, Podunkville, Kentucky, where I'm at, you know, so this gym, we had seven guys go over 2000 pounds, three guys go over 2200. And I think five over 21, but definitely seven over 2000, five over 21 and two or three over 20, 22 and one over 23. Um, But it was all like, it wasn't me, but I think what helped was that I was competing and winning you know, these shows and guys are like, well, I'm just going to do what he's doing. And I would wanted to help them do what I was doing. And everybody just got better. But that was some of the best training environment I ever had. Both of the gyms that I would rank the best gyms I ever trained in were right here in Kentucky. One was Gorilla Squad. It was a single car garage. Yep. Robbie totaled 2060. Adam Hires totaled 2100. I was in the 2000s at that range. Corey Hayes, mm-hmm. over 1900, mm-hmm. 2000. Brad Little, pulling like seven something, 745, I think at 160. Um, and that was just a small little gym of, of just piss and vinegar, honestly. Yeah. Went to West side after that. I got better, came back, went to a place called uh, Berea Barbell. We all got better there. Berea Barbell kind of merged with iron mafia. And that became the place where I kind of, that was where I got my name as far as. Yeah status as far as the raw side yeah um but yeah man it's it's hard like winning is an ugly process winning is not a is not a guarantee so it's like when you're in that mindset and you're when you're close i think it you either go the route of bill gillespie and like i'll get there when i get there or you just try to beat the door down and that was always my personality was like get it now um but yeah i don't know i i wonder about some of the dynamics of some of these coaches at the high like phil jackson like think, take a guy like that as a coach. I mean, he was a good player. He was a hard nosed player, but how do you manage the egos that you dealt with? I mean, you had Jordan, you had Kobe and Shaq, you had that whole deal. And, uh, I don't know, man, 11 rings speaks for itself, but he's a special individual. Have you read his books? I have Phil not. Jackson. I, I like his book, 11 rings. Um, that's a pretty good one. Like it just talks about some of his process and things, but I was just never that kind of guy. I was never a patient leader. I don't yeah. think. And yeah, that's something I still have to work on is really being like, not everybody wants to do things the way you do and not everybody mm-hmm. should do the things that you do. Um, but that's always been a hard one for me is even when I, I've even talked about it when I was a kid, you know, throwing that ball and spiking it under this girl that missed the layup or <laughs> hitting a referee with my cleat. Because he couldn't, he wouldn't throw a card on a kid that was hitting one of my players, you know? So, yeah, I don't know. I just hate losing apparently, but, um, yeah, (laughs) that's, that's where I'm at. Well, I'll segue this into closing by saying this is actually going to be coming out the day after Thanksgiving. So this is not, I, I guess I'll post how we roll, but I am Turkey bowling the heck out of tomorrow morning (laughs) so (laughs) we've got a huge turkey bowl game and we do not mess around oh really when we show up Uh, yeah my high school and back home oh that's most of it most of it is uh guys and coaches that 
I played with yeah. that come back and play. And then there's a couple of like younger, like there's usually one or two of the players from the last handful yeah, of years yeah. that will come back. But a lot of it is like the guys I played with. And then a couple of our coaches that roll in. Yeah. And uh, every time we play, it's like, it, it just transports you back to like sixth grade because there's, we start with a time limit yeah, and then it's like, nope, we're not done. We're going <laughs> to, we're going to keep rolling. And it's like, we're just getting in each other's face about it. And it's like kind of that same thing. It, it's funny how, the most intense I ever got about sports really ever from like a anger or whatever standpoint is playing the people on my own team and playing my yeah. friends yep. rather than like channeling that and getting in people's face. I'm like, I did that every once in a while when we were actually playing football games against other teams. But it's like, I remember middle school games we play just out in the yard and just tearing into each other and like these were like my friends yeah that we would do this with every day <laughs> it's like we'd spend 10 minutes of every game just yelling at each other <laughs> well the guy 859-986-8619 my buddy jason <laughs> he would uh funny story about jason his parents won the lottery when we were in high school i'll never forget it oh heck yeah i was like in big uh, time big time uh it was actually nice. his brother um that won it but somehow I, I don't want to tell all the details on that but somehow he and his dad claimed to have bought the ticket together and, and split the difference or whatever. So they both ended up with a pretty good chunk of change. But nevertheless, I will never forget uh, that story that leads into another. We were in home at class and the principal called like to the to the room and Jason walks up to the front of the class and he, he went pale white and then he got blood red. And he was like, I got to go. And I was going home with him <laughs> after school that day. So he was like, we got to go. <laughs> so I'm like, all right, what's going on? <laughs> Somebody die. He goes, I'm about to, we won the lottery. And I was like, holy shit. So <laughs> by the time I get to their house, um, it was insane. The phone did not stop ringing. And literally I was one of the people answering phone calls, writing down who they were and just what they wanted. Like, Hey, uh, we went to school together. You know, I need $5,000. Like, people literally no asking for way. like $5,000, $2,000. I need my electric turn back on. I need this. And How it was much just was the lottery. Um, do you remember? So, so I do remember the, the cash lump sum was like 6 million and they split it. Like, <laughs> I think it was, I think the split was like three, three and two, seven was the way it went. Um, but nevertheless, that's what they actually brought back or that, that was, was the cash after it was, it was two, seven, three, three after all the nut washed out for each of them. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, the actual the, the pot was been like 11 or 12. Yeah. 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 Probably it was then. something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the dad yeah. got three, <laughs> the son got 2.7 and they were very, very like the mom and dad kept working. They kept everything going as it was. They lived in this little house on uh, scaffold cane road. And it, I mean, it was just a modest, normal single family home, yeah. but they built a really, really like they didn't overdo it. You know, it was probably a, in my town at the time, it was probably a $250,000, $300,000 house, um, which in this town at that time was double any other house yeah. in the market. So right, really, really cool house. Um, they had a professional designer come in and do a lot of the details and ornamentation in there. Just badass, but they never, ever, they never, ever lost their way, I guess. You know, the, the dad, That's cool. the dad bought a, one of those Explorer like conversion vans and we would go on trips in that. Nice. And, uh, but the mom wanted the house and that was really all they ever bought. Like they just, they bought a little land here and there and whatever, but they've lived intelligently on it. And, um, that's awesome. But one of the things I'll never forget, his dad was like a, he was a guy that would get up 
at four o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning and watch gun smoke and Bonanza and smoke two packs of cigarettes before the sunrise. I'm talking <laughs> light them off the end of the other. And in that single family home, you know, the kids that would stay over because Jason always had like, we had NBA jam tournaments. We had basketball tournaments oh, yeah. outside flag football tournaments, tackle football tournaments. And his parents were just like, I'm going to order four or five pizzas for the kids. We're going to get four or five, two liters of Mountain Dew, and they're going to be up all night and sleep all day. And that's what it was like every Friday night. <laughs> that's awesome. But we would play, um, we would play football. Oh my God. Like all day long. And yes. I can remember like not the next day, but that Monday going into school. Oh, just like you couldn't Dragon. even move because <laughs> yeah. I remember I got a reputation as a kid that couldn't tackle. Like I would just run and I'd have three guys. Like I remember one time I had Sean Bates and Matt Ross and uh, Jared Shockey were on my legs and I'm like, <sighs> just like dragging these kids. So when that becomes your reputation, like you don't want to go down. So every yep. single time I got the ball was like, I'm putting my head into your shoulder. I'm running you like, but there were so many fights, so many oh, freaking all there fist was. fight brawls. And, and then calling penalties that were like, <laughs> nobody even calls in a regular game. Yeah. Like, and we're like coming Fuck at the, we're coming at him with the, we're coming at him with the rule book. Like yeah. that's going to do something. Dude, forearm shivers to the face were a common staple <laughs> in our backyard. But man, I don't even know if do kids even do that stuff anymore. Like, honestly, I mean, I think about my own I son. I don't, it's not a part of his like story. I have an 11 year old, I have 11 year old cousin and he's right in the thick of flag football right now. And that was, I think I remember being one of the things when he started a couple years ago was like, he, he was getting frustrated by not playing well. And he was asking his dad, who is his dad, my uncle, played semi-pro football. He played in Europe mm-hmm. for a year. Uh, he actually had a cool deal. He was a player coach oh, in yeah. Europe in Austria. In Austria for a year, he played for the Graz Giants. Oh, yeah. And, Dude, Graz, <laughs> that's where uh, Arnold's from. Yep. Yep. And uh, so he was playing. But his my, cousin, my little cousin would ask, like, you know, what do I need to do? Like, give me drills and stuff. He's like, dude, we literally just played football. Yeah. all the time like that's how you got better mm-hmm. and i remember like i remember being uh like maybe anywhere from third grade to seventh grade yeah friday nights when the high school was playing we were playing our own game on the on the grass behind the bleachers you better bet your ass every, you were you better every bet your week. ass you were yeah <laughs> and it wasn't until maybe like eighth grade when i was about to go into high school next year i'm like i better start paying attention because i was actually playing in the yeah, same yeah. system that was being brought but you know that was different but every year before that we had games rolling in the dark there was no lights yep. so it was like it but that was what we did yeah well that's a, that's kind of like uh, my high school so my high school would routinely gra- graduate 30 to 40 kids a year. So the high school was like 150 to 200 kids. Yep. And, but the cool thing about it, when back in the 70s, before this county split, before this town had a county school, I mean, these were state, like state runner ups, quarterfinal, state finals, whatever. And uh, just a powerhouse of a school. So they had an amazing stadium built for the time. Yeah. But, you know, now it's like the stadium's half full, but the town still supported it, whatever came out in full. But right beside it was this public parks basketball court. So the basketball court would sometimes be like football, you know, like 
flag or touch football. And then it would get to tackles on the blacktop. And then it would be like somebody's mom would get mad that they were all scuffed up and cut up. And it was like, it's over. <laughs> yep. So then you would play yep. like unlimited rules basketball until like that got bad. And then it would be yes. something else and something else. But that was a every Friday night thing. And then Saturday night, Berea College would have basketball. And we had a legendary coach named Roland Weirwilly, and he was friends with Bobby Knight. Same style, throwing chairs on the floor, cussing referees, everything. Terrified of this man. Absolutely fucking terrified of this man. And even when I was in college, like when he would see, Lily, how you doing? And it's like, I'm just walking through the hall. Where the hell you been? And it was just like an interrogation, intense yeah, interrogation every time. every time he saw you. But I'll never forget, I was working at the alumni office. And at my school, you didn't pay tuition, but you worked on the campus in a similar position to your career path. So mine was communication and English. That was my majors. Communication was an independent major of the English major. So you had to get a full English major plus a minor in communication. And then I had a minor in business. So they put me in the alumni office, which there was a lot of correspondence with alumni, a lot of business communication and things like that. So nevertheless, um, one of the things was they had a summer summer reunion and we would turn the whole campus into like this massive party for everyone that came back. And coach Weirwilly had, had requested some chairs and some tables for a coach's luncheon that he was giving and not uncommon. Um, what's the, what's the architect, uh, really well known, um, shit. Art Vandalay. No, um, <laughs> he, he built like a lot of really called reference. What is his name? Let me let me look him up real quick. But nevertheless, um, American architects. You'll you'll know his name as soon as I say it. Frank Lloyd Wright. So his apprentice designed this house called Windswept in Berea, and it's it overlooks Owsley Fork. It's like this create this crazy beautiful home that the college owns, and they had a women's cucumber sandwich luncheon up there. So they needed the same thing. Uh, chairs and, and tables. So we delivered those never, never like no one gets to see this place because it's like college owned. It's beautiful. It's an artifact of American history. So here it is. And I'm like, Holy crap, this is amazing. Like this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. So then we take the rest of the chairs and the table to coach. Weirwilly's house. I walk in Bobby Knight sitting on the fucking couch. <laughs> well, look at this big broad son of a bitch. <laughs> and like, that was all he said to me. Shook my hand, said, thank you for doing this. Coach Wheelie comes over and he's like, meet my friend Bob, Coach Knight. And it was just like, I couldn't even That's say cool. anything. Like, that was one of the few times in my life I've been speechless around, like, somebody that I would have wanted to talk to in any other setting. But it was, just, cool. it was just crazy. Like, some of the stories of, like, the alumni that we had, like Gina Davis brought her, brought her mother to the campus. I met Gina Davis, talked about League of Their Own forever. Um, she didn't care about it too much, but I did. And then, uh, you know, we had the guy that invented the touchscreen for Apple. He was a graduate of that school. Um, Jack Roush, Roush racing. He's yeah. a, he's a fundamental, um, he's a, he's an alumni, but one of the, the crazy things about him. So the, the design of the school was that if you're a, if you grew up in Appalachia and you could not afford education, there needed to be a place for you to go to get higher education. So in 1859, John Fee, he was a pastor, came to Berea because he had a dream and he referenced the Bible in the town of Berea in the Bible. Comes to this town as a preacher. He says, listen, we need a school that enrolls 50% black, 
50% white, and they pay no tuition. They work here for their education. Saving grace was that he was a pastor and like they didn't hang him or run him out of town. Like this is the battle of Richmond occurred here. Yeah. This is Berea. It's like literally the next town down. And you can tell that by like the hospitality. When you go North, everybody's a fucking prick an asshole. They don't hold doors for women. They don't ask how you're doing. They don't say, have a good day. You go here and it's like, come on in, honey, we're going to feed you. You know? So it's like, but that was probably his saving grace. If he had gone 20, 30 miles North, they probably, even though it was like a, a more Northern side of the state, they would have just run him out. Um, yeah. So anyway, when the school decided to include what they call Afro Lacha, which is Atlanta and some of these other like Cincinnati, Jack Roush was like, this is no longer the mission of the school. This is no longer taking care of the people that we designed the school to take care of. And he wasn't a designer, but he was a benefactor. And he would let all the technology students come to North Carolina, his racing shop for the entire month of January. So we had a semester. We had January was called short term. You took one class, four or five hours a day, highly in depth. And a lot of times we would travel the whole month and be gone somewhere. So for example, I had a class called God versus evolution. Why is there a versus, you know, and it was like a detailed study between a, you know, a theory professor and a fundamentalist Christian professor and they tandem mm. the class and it was amazing. So yeah. anyway, when, when, and it was not, um, you know, he got a lot of bad press about that as like a racial conflict, but he's like, it's not a racial conflict. He's like, we're bringing white kids in from Atlanta and Cincinnati too. He said, that is just not the fundamental principle of the people we tried to educate. We tried to educate yeah. the poor, the the stigmatized of Appalachia, like your dumb West Virginia kid or a dumb Kentucky kid or whatever. And he was like, until you guys go back to the original model, my shop's off limits. So for the last 10 years, wow. he has not let anyone come into the college and he's not donated a dollar. So crazy. But it's just, you know, it's is he right or is he wrong? I don't know. But it's there's just a lot of really interesting stories out there of people that have come through the college, freaking uh had Westboro Baptist Church there to protest one time. You know, it's a, it's just a crazy little place. But anyhow, enough about that. I don't even know what I was talking Wild. about. Oh, they don't have <laughs> – oh, the whole thing was to say they don't even have a football team. There was a kid uh, killed playing football there, the Seabury family, and they actually donated an annual donation to whatever the school theorized or, you know, analyzed that they would make for a football season, the school don't – or they donate that amount not to have oh, a football wow. team. Yeah. But they have the Seabury cool. Center, which is like the entire athletics facility under that name. But their son, he passed away from a neck injury or something playing football. And they're like, no more football. Wow. Yeah. That's wild. That's crazy. Well, that won't be the case at the Turkey Bowl tomorrow. <laughs> but... <laughs> there will be broken necks, but there will still be football. <laughs> we're all getting we're getting a little too old to take it that seriously. How many but... hamstrings? What's the over-under on the hamstring tears tomorrow? Oh man, I'm gonna say uh, two and a half. I was gonna say that's okay. I'm three. You're you're less than okay. two and a half. I'm o I'm three or over. You're taking the over, okay. <laughs> yeah. And what's the uh, what's the bet? You got to eat a whole rotisserie chicken on it on on the next podcast. Oh, no drink, no sauce. <laughs> Just dry, Just dry ass rotisserie chicken. <laughs> I'll get back to you after I find out what the result is. Drink some water, <laughs> up your salt yeah. today, do some stretches. <laughs> oh, too funny. 
All right. You guys have good Thanksgiving, or I hope you had a good one. The rest of the good holiday weekend, and we'll catch you guys next oh, week. Oh, last thing. Born Primitive Maybe. running a sale. They're, they're running oh, a pretty awesome a sale. sale through the next few days. Um, make sure you check them out. They have so much. It's new- like 30% off. Yeah, and they have so I much. Think. And again, this is the end of the show. Probably it's not even listening, but they have so much gear out, and they have so much good gear coming out. Like, yep. I've gotten a few things. Ross has gotten a few things. Just the company is going into the stratosphere as far as their direction, and they have some really, really cool shit coming. So keep your eyes on them. Check them out for this 30% off sale. Keep supporting companies that support us. And like I said, it's never money. It's about relationships. So thank you guys for listening. Thank you guys for the support of us and them. And, yeah, have an amazing Thanksgiving. Be safe out there.